You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live to tape online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. For your viewing and listening pleasure on this Christmas Eve, 2022. Today is the best of the Valley Labor Report. We ask, what is a union? We replay an old interview about unions and racism from 2020. We replay the segment where we first discuss the child labor issue at Hyundai, all that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, you're not going to be able to because like I said, we are not live today. This is a pre-taped episode, but you can call our phone number or text our phone number and leave us a message and we might answer it answer it on the next program where we will be live. That phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Uh, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, TikTok, <laughs> anywhere you find anything, we're there. Uh, so look for us there, all at the Valley Labor Report. Uh, just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy our merch, you can go to our website. That's tvlr.fm, tvlr.fm slash store or tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. If you're a member of a union, then you should get your local to sponsor the show. Definitely consider that. You can reach out to us for more details. So, you know, the issue with a best of program is that uh, ideally, <clears throat> ideally, some of your best content hopefully is going to be coming from pretty recently uh and that's the case with the first clip that we're starting off with today uh it's from a panel that we convened i believe it was back in september so not too long ago but it has been a few months uh where we convened several different trade unionists from across the country and across industries and one of the first questions we tackled in this panel was what is a union 
That's a pretty important question, if somewhat rudimentary. And Michelle Eisen from Starbucks Workers United and Graham Gale from the REI Union answered masterfully. Let's listen. So we've got a we've got a working definition of workers, um, which is which is important because I I'm in a I'm in a union environment where um, where. I, I, I'm white collar, right? I, I work on the computer all day. I sit in my cube and I and I work on the computer. And there, I have a lot of coworkers that they do not conceive of themselves as workers. They conceive of themselves as professionals. And and all all of these, you know, maybe there there are interesting conversations that we can have about the divisions in the working class and what that does to people. But the important thing is is to understand that we are working class. And so, with that working definition. What is a union then? And uh, for that, I, I'll, I'm interested, Michelle, I'll, I'll let you take that away. So a, a union is a collective of workers that are able to use that as their voice when it comes up to, you know, people like, let's say, Starbucks corporate and and use that voice to gain a collective bargaining agreement, but also to hold that company accountable. So I think the biggest thing, and this goes, you know, right to the to the the longshoremen, when you get those things, when you get those benefits, this also relates to to John, Johnny's uh, sort of gray area, right? Um, a lot of these companies will try to say that a, a union is a third party. You know, it's mm. it's it's actually a it's a it's a barrier between the worker and the corporate representatives or the worker and the company. But the actuality is, is it's the only thing that allows the workers to hold that company accountable. Starbucks is really big on claiming the amazing benefits that they already offer their workers, which I can tell you as one of their workers is not actually as good as they say it is. But let's just say that it was. There's still nothing preventing Starbucks from pulling those benefits away. The only thing preventing Starbucks from coming in and taking those benefits from us once they've been offered is a collective bargaining agreement, is a contract. So it's a, it's really hard for me, this whole third party narrative, and they used it quite a bit in their anti-union campaign here in Buffalo when they were trying to stop this from happening to begin with is, you know, we want to be able to have a conversation with each and every one of our partners. We don't want to have to go through a union representative. Well, first of all, that's completely unrealistic that you're ever going to have a conversation with every 400, you know, 400,000 of us. Um, the better thing for us is to be able to have a union collectively made up of your workers that can have these conversations and then come to you, at, you know, with maybe one rep or two reps, but representative of the 400,000 people standing behind us and be able to say, this is what we need. This is what we need on the floors of these stores. Nobody knows what we need better to run these stores than the people actually running them. Um, and when we sign that agreement with these benefits that you offer us, we want to make sure you can't come and take them away. I personally, in the 12 years I've been with the company, I know some of the benefits we had when I started in 2010, and I could make a nice little list of the ones that have already been just taken away from us unilaterally without any conversation. Mm -hmm. And so a union allows us to have that voice and to hold the company accountable. And, and there's, there are several things that, that 
that are important and, and that I want to pull out there. And, and, and one of those is, is that, you know, it, you said that it's a collective of workers coming together for, you know, a better workplace, better working conditions and, 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 and stuff like this. And, and that is, it, that is a definition that's not dependent on the government. That's a definition that's not dependent on, uh, the boss recognizing that you're a union. You know, if you come together, you say you're a union, then, you know, then by golly, you're a union, right? And, and, and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. And that's an important thing to, to understand. And, and, you know, we should, I, I think, I think we should. And I think most of us, you know, we're all in unions that, that more or less agree with this. We should make use of, of the state power through the National Labor Relations Board and, and the National, um, Labor Relations Act where we can and where it makes sense. But, um, if all of that falls away tomorrow, and that's not the case. And we're in a landscape without legal protection for unions. Workers had those before those legal legal protections. Workers had unions when it was expressly illegal, right? And so it's important to understand that, you know, whether or not you have a union election, if you're coming together with people on your job and advocating for yourselves, uh, then then that's that's the working definition of a union. That's the thing that's that's important there. Um, Graham, did you, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Yes, I did. Um, you kind of touched on it, but, um, in, in our organizing at REI, um, a lot of people, you know, hadn't either been in a union or didn't know what a union was. We have a lot of people who are either in college or recently graduated, um, or have been in those more like quote unquote professional white collar jobs who are sort of in a second career or this is their like fun retail job um, who don't really like didn't really know what a union was. Um, and so when explaining it to people, the the one point that we as organizers try to make is that, you know, no matter what union you're affiliated with, whether you affiliate at all, ultimately the union is us. You know, we are the ones who are making the decisions. We are the ones who are deciding, you know, when to use our power, how to use our power as workers. Um, so, yeah, that that is just kind of the, the fine point that I wanted to put on that is that, um, you know, if you call yourself a union, you are a union because it is made up of you and however many coworkers you have. Um, and the trick is just becoming organized and knowing how to wield the power of your collective voice. Absolutely, absolutely. Johnny, was there anything that you wanted to, uh, that you wanted to pull out of that uh, before we move on? Yes, thank you. Um, Everyone said it um, so perfectly that you are the union. Once you start talking to your coworkers and you all decide that, hey, we need to come together to make changes in your in the workplace, that is the day that your union has started. And it doesn't need to be a large number. It could be two of you. As soon as you say, hey, let's do something about this, your union has been formed. And that's it. And so with um everyone has talked about third partying the union that is um well i'm sure we'll get to this later big uh union busting tactic knowing that you are a union as soon as you start talking about making change that deads that right there so yeah just to echo what everyone said you are the union as soon as you start talking about it
Next up is a clip that is sadly still relevant months later as the Federal Reserve and conservative anti-worker forces in the Democratic and Republican parties seek to curb inflation by disciplining workers. In the following clip, we ask and answer the question, are workers to blame for inflation with some help from our friends at Means Morning News? I just wanted to play this clip from Means Morning News. They were talking about inflation last week, about some reporting from The Guardian. And, you know, and and we wanted to play this because the conversation about inflation is so, you, you know, we talked about with Matt Huber how when there was a push to... There, there was at one time in this country a push to make illegal single-use plastics to tackle the problem of littering and this, this environmental issue at the point of production where it actually comes from. And then the industry people were able to come and, and create this whole narrative about about. Oh, it's it's not it's not us. It's you. You should you should just throw it away in the proper place. Don't litter. You know they did this whole campaign about it. And well, with, similarly with inflation, we've got all these industry moguls that are trying to convince us that our wages that are barely, oftentimes not even keeping up with the pace of inflation, are the cause of inflation somehow. Right. I mean, <laughs> right now the inflation is about double the wage increases at least right. from you know the data that i've seen so while yeah. at the same time executive pay is still going through the roof i mean right and stock buybacks stock buybacks profits are increasing so let's go ahead and just play this clip from means morning news about inflation Recent investigation by The Guardian has revealed that the so-called inflation crisis in the U.S. is actually just a huge transfer of wealth from the working class to capitalists. Persistent myth around price increases is that companies are just reacting to rising costs of labor and raw materials by increasing their own prices in order not to lose money. But the reality is companies are taking advantage of relatively small increases in costs to jack up prices and enjoy world historic profit margins. And this cuts across several different industries. The Guardian looked at 100 top U.S. companies and examined their profit margins from the most recent quarter with measures from two years ago, before the pandemic took hold. And in case after case, companies enjoyed profits well above what they had experienced and well above whatever cost increases they've had to absorb associated with the virus. Median profit increase of the 100 companies examined was 49%. Meanwhile, workers' wages from the first quarter before the pandemic to the most recent quarter this year only went up by 1.6%. After an initial surge in wages at the start of the pandemic, worker pay decreased steadily as companies rolled back stuff like hazard pay, which further accelerated their profit growth. Look at some of these numbers. Mattel Corporation a profit growth of 111,400%. BP, an increase of 12,005%. Caterpillar, 958% profit increase. Swimming in cash, thanks to their price increases, these companies 
have spent billions enriching investors through stock buybacks. Some companies were even losing money before the pandemic, but under so-called inflation, they are more profitable than ever. UPS reported a quarterly profit loss of $106 million in the quarter before the pandemic, but in the most recent quarter, a profit of $3.1 billion, allowing the company to spend almost $7 billion on stock buybacks. Yeah. I mean, companies that were not profitable before the pandemic are now so profitable, they're spending billions of dollars on stock buybacks. A thousand percent increases. It's hundred. Uh, there's one company. Mattel has a one hundred forty-four thousand four hundred percent increase in their profits from before the pandemic started. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad that we shared this because the inflation conversation really has been just dominated by BS. Frankly, uh, because when they're not blaming workers and unions for the increase in prices. Uh, folks are saying it's it's Joe Biden. And I mean, listeners of this program know that we're not, you know, Joe Biden fanboys by any means. But if you really think that the reason prices are going up in the grocery store and at the gas pump can be laid solely at the feet of Joe Biden or at the at, at the hands of workers and the unions that represent these workers, you're mistaken. You're wrong. You're just wrong uh, because we see clearly the ways in which capitalist firms in many industries have monopoly power, especially, you know, meat industry where we've seen a lot of uh, rising prices. So there's there's a combination of factors, monopoly power and the fact that they can raise these prices and get away with it, because what are we going to do? Right. In many cases, we're talking about uh, we're talking about, you know, products that we don't have much of a choice. You know, folks have to buy groceries. Folks have to buy fuel. And so they can raise these prices. And it's not going into the pockets of the workers producing these products. Not at all. And, you know, there are other legitimate issues going on uh, contributing to the inflation crisis in terms of COVID and the disruptions in the supply chain. Um the war in Ukraine is having a major effect. Ukraine and Russia are both major exporters of grain and other products. And, of course, it's not just the war, but actually the American-led sanctions on Russia, which is also uh, contributing to this economic crisis. And, you know, the other part of that in terms of the supply chain is for years, companies have moved towards this just-in-time uh, logistics and so they're not they have not been keeping the inventories they used to. Uh, they've been having uh, these just in time production supply chains, and it doesn't take much to cause a lot of disruption. Uh, one thing I think that we could see as an opportunity there is is in the workers in these industries who have such a, a piece of leverage in terms of a supply chain. And I hope that those workers can leverage that to uh, improve things for themselves and for the rest of us as well. Alrighty, folks, we're going to head to our first break. Don't go anywhere, though. We've got plenty of great clips for you coming up on the other side. So stay tuned. 
Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. 
Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are bringing you the best of the Valley Labor Report today. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text. Our phone number is 844-899-TBLR. That is 844-899-8857. Even though we are not live today, you can still leave us a message and we might answer it on the next program where we will be live again on New Year's Eve. We will be bringing you a special New Year's Eve episode live. Um, You can also participate in our YouTube chat, which I am hopeful is bumping as the kids say right about now. So definitely, even though we're not live, uh, you can chat with people in the chat. So our next clip here, we've got a deep cut for you. That deep cut, it's an interview from the summer of 2020 during the George Floyd protests, where we talked to the University of Washington researcher, Jake Grumbach, about the relationship between unions and racism. Enjoy. This is an interview that I'm incredibly excited about. I think it intersects really nicely with the purpose of this show and the national conversation about racism that was spurred uh, by the murder of George Floyd in late May. Uh, Of course, due to the circumstances of his death, a lot of the conversation around uh, the has centered around the obvious racism in policing and the criminal justice system. But of course, racism exists elsewhere, too, and it raises the obvious question about how to work to combat that uh, in a lot of different scenarios. Uh, Rarely talked about in the popular discourse, unfortunately, is the role that labor unions can play, have played, and ought to play in combating racism both systemically and interpersonally. Dr. Jake Grumbach, a researcher at the University of Washington, along with his colleague Paul Freimer from Princeton, hope to not only discuss these things but prove what the effects of unions has been on racial resentment of members quantitatively. I think this is incredibly important work, and Jake, I appreciate you uh, taking your time to talk to us about this today. Absolutely. Great to be on with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. So the fact that union membership uh, decreasing interpersonal racism among members, um, the fact that it decreases racial resentment, this is a phenomenon that really any organizer worth their salt could tell you that they because they've experienced it firsthand. um, And it makes intuitive sense, uh, you know, when you're having because 
membership in a union necessitates having very hard and intimate conversations about things like pay, health care, whether to go on strike or not, and, and having these conversations often. So it makes sense that this increased personal exposure would decrease racial resentment, but you've gone a step further and attempted to put this phenomenon in hard numbers. Before we get too far into the broader conversation about racism and labor unions, I'd like to dig in a little bit on your study. Uh, so could you tell us how you're defining racial resentment, um, how you're finding the degree to which folks have this racial resentment, and uh, how you're measuring the effect that union membership plays on this? That sounds great. I think that was a great summary of the sort of issues at hand in the paper. So racial resentment is a way in surveys that social scientists use to try to detect racism in the public. And it's really actually uh, hard to find racism in the public in surveys because of what's called social desirability bias. And you can understand this, that when somebody calls you on the phone and asks you various questions, if they're asking you questions about, you know, do you believe black people are innately inferior to white people? <laughs> not many people are going to answer that. Even the ones that believe that are not going to answer it truthfully because it's embarrassing. So. Racial resentment as a measure is another way that uh, essentially asks questions whether people believe racial inequality is based on uh, uh, institutional racism, long-term racism, the legacy of slavery and segregation and beyond, or it's due to sort of personal defects, uh, laziness among black people and people of color. Um, so that's a pretty con there's a big debate actually in psychology, political science and sociology, other disciplines about how to measure racism, but that's one uh, main popular way. And then what we find, we do a lot of work statistically to try to show what, like you said, what labor organizers have known for a long time, and really also what historians and other qualitative scholars have known for a long time, which is that uh, unions have played a, a big role in producing a sort of interracial, solidarity-based labor movement and uh, we try to show this statistically, and it's really important when you do this statistically to try to show that it's actually labor unions making people less racist rather than other characteristics of them that are just uh, happen to be related to labor unions, that it's actually the labor union membership doing it. So we put in a lot of work to do that. Right, right. Yeah, uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about that work because you know I think that I think that there are some uh, variables that that people can think of that would make union members different than non union members. For example, geography. You know, there are more union members in New York and California, let's say, than in Alabama. We can also think about uh, private sector versus public sector. Um, you know, public sector workers tend to be more unionized than private sector workers, and uh, public sector the public sector also has a larger degree. Um, to my knowledge, there are more people of color working in the public sector. So, you know, like how how do you how do you um, get those confounding variables out in your study? Yeah. That's no, you should. Uh, yeah, you should come be a professor in my department. That you're asking exactly the right question. So, uh, the the point here is that so. You're exactly, I think the point's about geography, so there are more union members in uh, places where we'd maybe expect less racial resentment. Um, uh, uh, industries like teaching are more unionized, and people that become teachers tend to be, you know, interested in these sort of anti-racism issues more than the average person. But what we do is 
we use what's called panel data, where you look across time at the same people. So you have them before, you can ask them questions before they were labor union members, and then after, once they become labor union members, and see the change. And that protects statistically against uh, what you're calling, uh, what you're uh, suggesting, like confounders. So not only do we do things like statistically control for geography and for income and things like that, but we look at this panel data to try to see across time whether uh, becoming a union member changes you. And that's a, a lot more effective than trying to compare similar people, otherwise similar people who are and are not labor union members. Right. And then, and then we did a lot of work to establish that it wasn't other stories. So labor unions uh, provide people be- better job security and labor union members get paid higher wages than non-labor union members. It could just be, oh, that people feel a little more economically comfortable when they have a solid middle-class union job than a more precarious job otherwise. But we show that it's not the income that's doing this. It's actually being a labor union member and being part of a labor union. Right. And you you mentioned that you use this panel data that that looks at people over time. And not only does that um, remove the confounding variables of geography, public sector versus private sector, but that also works to um, decrease the amount of – what you called um, social desirability bias that, you know, a person is not going to tell you, right, that, uh, oh, yeah, I, like, I hate black people, right? No one's going to say yeah. that in a study. But, right. like, it, you know, it, it, you can measure, like, that the social desirability bias is going to be the same before and right. after a person joins the union, right? They're, like, say the social desirability bias is like plus one. I am like plus one, not a racist, uh, right? Uh, to whatever whatever right. the base, whatever you actually are, you add plus one to your not racist score, right? Well, if you That's have exactly an right. original uh, not racist score of two, and then when you join the union, you have a not racist score of three or four, then the delta is going to be the same whether or not you are, you know, are, are, are having this social desirability bias. And I think, so I think that that the the data that you have in, in your study and the work that you've done to reduce these biases and confounding variables is really robust and and um, laudatory. Thanks, thanks. So that's exact. Like these days in the social sciences and the quantitative social sciences, like you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, you know po- the politics of higher education in the U.S. Whether professors are too liberal or whatnot, but there are such strict rules and sort of thresholds you have to reach to demonstrate a statistical finding that's real. They, they really, you know, when you put a, a paper into a, a scientific journal and get it through peer review, they are looking for any potential reason you're actually wrong. So uh, you have to build these really, really robust demonstrations that you found something. It's a little overboard, actually, but it does show once you uh, get this through that, that what you found statistically is real. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, like you said, they talk about how, oh, you know, social science professors are very liberal, they're very loose with their studies, um, and they they just say what they want to say. And I think that, that hearing from you about the things that you're doing to reduce, d- reduce the amount of personal bias that's going in from you and reducing the amount of confounding variables that are just found naturally in the world, I think that may help people kind of understand the amount of work that actually goes in to stuff like this because there's there's real serious work and it takes a lot of time um, to, to do this kind of stuff. 
Exactly. No, way too much time. No, it's actually it's the <laughs> How long did the, yeah, how long did the study take you to do? So we you know, we wrote it over maybe uh six months the first real package of it and then you send it to a journal. This was actually like remarkably fast, uh, from my experience, and then it came back through peer review. In another three months you get reviews that say you need to change these and we're not convinced on these things. So uh, one reviewer actually asked about right-to-work states and non-right-to-work states. Basically, in the in the social science peer review process, they make you demonstrate that it could not possibly be any other reason for why you're finding the statistics you're finding. One could have been right-to-work states. One could have been we have too many professionals, you know, like uh, uh, teachers and nurses unions in our sample, things like that. We did extra work in the appendices to demonstrate that was not the case, and really we're finding that labor unions make uh, workers less racially resentful, less racist, uh, more interested in uh, interracial solidarity for sort of working class politics. Right, right. Uh, so w- when we talked uh, earlier, uh, kind of doing the debrief before the interview, you mentioned the, uh, that this, the, this study is very like temporally bound, right? This is not that uh, your results are not going to be true throughout all of history. And in fact, for, for people that know much at all about labor history, they know that uh, labor unions, especially the American Federation of Labor, uh, at the turn of the uh, at the turn of the 20th century, was a very racist organization. They had segregated unions, uh, white only unions, black only unions. Um, and they fought very hard for restrictionist immigration policies. They were very demeaning um, to to immigrants and immigrant labor, and so, uh, but but then there there, um, there came a change in the labor movement with the CIO uh, and other more um, uh, interracial solidarity movements uh, like the CIO, like the IWW stuff in the twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties. So, can you talk about kind of the role that the labor movement has played um, in racial politics throughout the uh, you know twentieth and twenty first century and how it's changed? Yeah, that's exactly right. From the AFL, which was a sort of artisanal craft union uh, where uh, they really fought hard for the Chinese Exclusion Act um, uh, and were an all-white union. But that changed. And uh, by the 20s and 30s, some majority white unions like the CIO and the IWW were actually really pushing for uh, civil rights to go hand in hand with labor politics. And they started articulating something that go a sort of theory that goes back to at least W.E.B. Du Bois in the early 20th century. But the idea that racism is a tool of the ruling class to divide workers and the working class and prevent uh, uh, solidarity and working class power um, to get their due. So uh, by the 20s and 30s, the IWW and CIO were uh, really pushing in that direction. And then this uh, became a huge uh, phenomenon in the UAW in the 1950s and 60s under Walter Ruther, and you can see Walter Ruther marching in the in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Martin Luther King's uh, uh, March on Washington. You can see him walking in the front with uh, uh, fellow uh, um, sort of union leaders like A. Philip Randolph of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a black union, and they that was when they knew. At the time, it was very clear that the labor movement was going to be a part of the civil rights movement, and they knew that, again, racism is dividing working-class people. Um, all the way to now, where the AFL-CIO is very, uh, very clearly has anti-racist messaging, um, the leaders uh, make speeches against racism in politics and elsewhere and say, 
keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, we need working class solidarity um, when we're divided uh, by race or gender or sexual orientation or really any of these uh, sort of uh, identity or cultural dimensions. That is a tool of the powerful of the ruling class to divide us. Right. What do you think it was? Um, uh, what do you think it was that made union leaders in the rank and file um, in the the twenties and thirties when when this started? Uh, becoming more apparent. What do you think it was that, like, what was the light bulb moment, right? Because for so long, uh, unions had, like we said, unions had played into this racial division, um, native versus immigrant worker division. And uh, so what was the light bulb moment that made them see that, oh, this is like, not in our interests to, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to like, not like immigrant workers or not like black workers. This is not in our interest. It will be more in our interest if we all work together. What was that light bulb moment? Yeah, I think there's two potential explanations in union leaders' minds. One's the more sort of strategic, cynical answer, which is still cool, which is that they saw, okay, there's an increased number of black uh, industrial workers uh, coming to, for example, northern cities in the Great Migration by the 1930s. Um, and uh, the Depression was on. And uh, to keep labor unions powerful and expand their power, uh, they would uh, try to uh, uh, create interracial labor unions to expand their memberships. That's one reason. Another is this more just principle-based reason that you see uh, very clearly that uh, divisions based on race are going to hurt uh uh, class politics, and really just economic justice for uh, people in the U.S. period. Right, right. And it, you also mentioned when we were talking earlier about the role that um, that the labor movement and organized labor has played in partisan politics. And you mentioned in this during this period, we can call it like a renaissance or, um, you know, I, I, it, it wasn't like a renewing necessarily, but like this really powerful interracial solidarity movement within the within organized labor within the house of labor that that really brought people together um and in the 50s and 60s we had nearly 30 something percent of workers unionized and there and, and so there was this very strong class politics um and and that has kind of been uh, switched for something else. Can you can you tell us what that was and and how how that switch happened in in the partisan That's political right. landscape? So since the 1970s, labor union density, labor union membership has declined, you know, massively. And this was intentional, right? By you know, politicians and corporate forces really didn't want uh, workers to be organized, and they got uh, major businesses got really involved in politics by the late 70s and onwards. Um, they helped to crush labor unions, for example, in the 1980s. Uh, as labor unions uh, were uh, diminishing, then this labor power was uh, uh, less evident in politics. And what replaced it was uh, strategic on the part of some of these politicians who wanted people to not focus on labor issues, not threaten their corporate power to get paid higher wages and have better health care and job security. They wanted people to focus on cultural resentment issues and identity resentment issues. So uh, uh, after the 1980s, we saw the increase of this sort of uh, cultural backlash politics, for example, of, uh, and we see that now. So it's, it's clear statistically, again, if you're in political science and you do these statistics, you can tell more about how somebody's going to vote 
based on how they feel about Colin Kaepernick than you can based on how they feel about health care and the minimum wage and uh, uh, sort of uh, class policies, economic policies like that. We're in a moment where politics is overwhelmingly cultural and about cultural resentment that we really dislike certain people we see on TV, and we hope we can elect people that, you know, talk trash on those people who we dislike on TV. And that has replaced uh, sort of solidarity-based labor politics to the detriment of working-class people. And since the 70s, we've seen a huge rise of it. We've seen the middle class stagnate, um, where there's been no new wealth for the middle class, and yet the sort of billionaire class has uh, swollen its wealth, uh, you know, many times since the, over the past generation. And that's not an accident. That was part of destroying the labor movement. Right. That, and, and, you know, I think that people don't really recognize the extent to which both of the major parties really, really do this. They, they want to talk about these cultural issues rather than talking about the bread and butter, butter issues about health care, wages, retirements, pensions, because it's so, so much easier to, like, paint Black Lives Matter on a street than it is to actually reform the police department. Identity politics. Uh, in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party has kind of replaced a sort of class politics uh, that, that the labor movement was very, um, very active in creating uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And so w- was there any other thoughts that you wanted to add to that? No, I just thought before the break you'd summarize it really nicely. So one, one there's a, yeah, a couple things to highlight in what you said. One is that, uh, uh, yes, uh, so there's, sort of two versions of identity politics going on and sort of cultural resentment politics. One is uh, at least the Democratic Party establishment really, really likes symbolic gestures about uh, uh, anti-racism, anti-homophobia, and uh, sort of anti-misogyny messaging without much material backing to it. So, for example, uh, a policy like Medicare for all or uh, uh higher minimum wage or stronger labor power for unions, that would help, uh, that would uh, certainly help uh, African Americans and other people of color in the U.S. tremendously, but those don't appear on the agenda as much as some symbolic policies sometimes. On the Republican side, you have, I think Donald Trump encapsulates this best, where you the sort of stereotype we have in our head is that his base is the white working class former union member, like mm-hmm. a, a, a you know, out-of-work coal miner, whereas uh, his policies in office have been nothing but, economically, nothing but giving red meat to the billionaire class, massive high-end tax cuts and other things like that. And what he uh, has done strategically really well is uh, cause people to vote based on cultural resentment and a sort of white identity politics rather than look at the policies, look at his attempts to cut health care and wages and uh, transfer a ton of money upward to the billionaire class. Right, and, and again, you mentioned in your the, paper... The, oh, what were you saying? Yeah, just no, the decline of labor movements is, is just key in this. Right, and you mentioned in your paper that W.E.B. Du Bois uh, called... The, the, the phenomenon um, of white workers being pro-slavery despite the fact that it decreased their uh, 
free labor, um, the white workers' labor, because they're competing with free labor. Um, and and so today we we kind of have a psychological wage where people are voting for Trump so that he can make the right people angry rather than actually make their lives materially better. I don't think it's exactly the same. It's a little different, but it's still a psychological wage. No, you're not actually – your life is point. not getting better. Uh, you're just like – you're just experiencing schadenfreude uh, because, <laughs> because exactly. you, like, get the, you don't get – yeah, your health care is cut and you lose your job, but at least you own the live. Right. Am I right? Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, uh, you know, we're talking about this as if it's uh, – the implication is that this is bad. It, it, it is bad that identity politics has taken over from a class politics um, that the labor movement helped to helped to invigorate in the middle in the middle of the 20th century. And so um, as somebody who uh, I, I don't think you primarily see yourself as like a union activist. I think you primarily see yourself as, as like a researcher, an academic, uh, somebody like that. But so from. And I'm assuming you're you're in the union at the University of Washington, but as somebody who's nominally on the outside, like this isn't like what you think about day in and day out. What would you tell labor leaders to do to reinvigorate that class politics and and try to shift the conversation from these cultural psychological wages to a right. to real wages, to real material benefits for working people? So I do think, yeah, uh, to some extent labor unions are doing the right thing. So we uh, found as evidence sort of some of these solidarity-based trainings that unions do. And some of this has declined. So the AFL-CIO used to have uh, uh, sort of larger organizer and steward trainings than they do now. Um, There's things the labor union can double down on. Uh, I love the idea of more small-D democratic unions where the rank and file has a greater voice, all of that. But again, I'm not on the ground. Uh, I have you know, family history in uh, the labor movement and personally have uh, uh, dabbled uh, in uh, working with unions. But you're right, I'm on the outside. So I'm trying to get this. Basically, what I did was help to uh, statistically demonstrate, I think, what a lot of labor organizers knew. But uh, I'm looking for both you guys and uh, organizers on the ground for insights about sort of the next big push. But I would say for political candidates, uh, really thinking that if you are uh, interested in voting or running for office and things like that, uh, there's a tension often you hear, either focus on anti-racism or focus on class politics like unions. However, that's a false choice that actually, if you think about, it's really the idea of race and class together is the fundamental building blocks of sort of U.S. struggle and politics. And the labor movement combines those to build a robust sort of uh, class politics for everybody and interracial solidarity that can uh, really build a stronger middle class. That's exactly that, – that, that, that's – I completely agree with that. And you mentioned something about uh, a more small-D democratic unions. And this is something that Jane McAlevey really pushes in her books. And it, and it makes a lot of sense but making a union more small-D democratic um, where it's practicable, practicable, which is in a lot of areas, uh, is really – is is just – 
almost like a silver bullet for so many issues. It's a silver bullet for corruption. If members have more control over their leaders, the uh, leaders are not going to be corrupt. One of the reasons that the UAW was able to uh, become so corrupt at the top is because uh, they the people at the top removed a lot of the uh, checks and balances the membership had on them. So if you increase democracy in unions, if you increase the ability of, of members to have a say over the way that their unions are run, then you obviously decrease decrease corruption, but uh, you're, you're going to help make the unions more um, that more of an anti-racist union because you know it's not in the interest of the workers to be racist. So um, you know that that's definitely a really good thing that I, I think that a lot of of good organizers would agree with. We've got a couple of minutes left uh, in the interview, so could you just tell us? Kind of you, you you alluded to it a little bit, but tell us what made you want to do this study. What made you want to look into yeah. this? So yeah, I've long been interested in these issues of sort of race and class together. Um, but uh, personally, so my grandfather, my mom's dad was a, uh, a newspaper editor for black newspapers like the Michigan Chronicle and then the Chicago Defender in the mid-century. And he was on sort of the labor beat and was really interested in integrating labor unions to become an interracial force for uh, the working and middle class in places like Chicago and Detroit. Um, uh, so that was a powerful influence. Uh, uh, moving forward, just in my childhood, growing up in a city, seeing people without health insurance, uh, uh, seeing uh, just uh, the need for thinking about race and class together, um, all the way uh, to uh, interning for the union Unite Here, which is a mostly hotel and uh, some restaurant workers unions out on the West Coast. Um, all of those uh, really informed uh, my interest in this. Yeah. And again, we just do in political science and social science, we do a tremendous amount of sort of work on uh, people's psychology and how they vote and things like that. There's not enough work quantitatively on the role of labor unions. Alrighty, folks, we're going to take our last break here. We will be right back with a couple more clips and then we're going to head out of here. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. 
Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are not live today. We are bringing you the best of the Valley Labor Report. But if you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We might uh, read your comments sent to that number or play your voicemail on the next program. So here we've got a clip from uh, the summer of 2022, uh, this past summer, that is also sadly still relevant as just last week, we received news that now four Hyundai facilities in Alabama have been confirmed to be using child labor with an additional six being investigated. 
Here's our first discussion of the issue immediately after reports were made public back in July. Let's get to some local news. This went incredibly viral last week. Um, And it's genuinely, genuinely insane news coming out of Reuters yesterday. Came out yesterday thanks to reporters Joshua Schneier, Micah Rosenberg, and Christina Cook about child labor at the Hyundai facility in Alabama. Let's go to their report. Underage workers, in some cases as young as 12, have recently worked at a metal stamping plant operated by Smart Alabama LLC, these people said. Smart, listed by Hyundai in corporate filings as a majority-owned unit, supplies parts for some of the most popular cars and SUVs built by the automaker in Montgomery, its flagship U.S. assembly plant. And we aren't talking about kids working in kid-friendly environments either. You know, I mean, they, they really shouldn't be working at all or only in very limited circumstances. Kids should be learning, having fun in school, being kids. But these are, we are not talking about kid-friendly environments. We're not talking about going down, you know, to the family farm and milking a cow or, you know, just some menial tasks in a safe location. That's not what's happening at this plant. A Reuters review of the records shows that SMART has been assessed with at least $48,515 in OSHA penalties since just 2013. In less than 10 years, we're talking about about $50,000 in fines from OSHA, which $50,000 is not a lot, but when you think about how much OSHA can actually find or does actually find, especially under a Republican administration, $50,000 is a lot of money from, uh, from OSHA. It, it, it indicates a big safety problem. And it was most recently filed just in the last year, in 2022. OSHA inspections at SMART have documented violations including crush and amputa- amputation hazards at the facility. Now, this is not more crazy or disgusting than the original article of children working at facilities with amputation hazards. But get this, the attorney general's office has known about this since at least February. Five months, five months, Steve Marshall has known about child labor in Alabama. And he ha- his office had no comments to give to the Reuters reporters about whether or not there would be prosecutions in the case. Can you just imagine that? Having known about literal child labor in Alabama for five months, and that is not enough time to be able to tell reporters whether or not you're going to be doing prosecutions. Quoting from the article, Reuters learned of underage workers at the Hyundai-owned supplier following the brief disappearance in February of a Guatemalan migrant child from her family's home in Alabama. The police force in Enterprise, which is about 45 miles from the plant in Laverne, doesn't have jurisdiction to investigate possible labor law violations at the factory. Instead, the force notified the state attorney general's office after the incident. James Sanders, an Enterprise police detective, told Reuters. 
Mike Lewis, a spokesperson at the Alabama Attorney General's office, declined to comment. It's unclear whether the office or other investigators have contacted Smart or Hyundai about possible violations. Five months! Five months! We're si- they're sitting on this story for five months! The Attorney General's office has known about this issue for five months, and the only reason we know about it is because of Reuters. The only reason we know about it is because of Reuters. Let's contrast this total and complete lack of urgency, lack of moral clarity, lack of giving a damn about Hyundai exploiting children in a plant in Alabama with amputation hazards, with his recent comments on Google. The Attorney General of the state of Alabama, the highest enforcer of the law in the state, unprompted, unprompted, nobody asked him to do this joined a letter with other state attorneys general who also apparently have nothing else better to do, stating that if Google does not give them the search results they want, they might sue. (laughs) Talk about... Priorities. I mean, good God. Talk about misplaced priorities. What about abortion? What's his urgency been like on this issue? Well, according to Parker Snyder, yet another columnist for Coke-funded, flat-earth, military coup, crypto-bro-boosting propaganda outlet 1819 News, around 9.15 a.m. on Friday, June 24th, news of the court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization overruling Roe v. Wade reached Alabama at 10.37 a.m. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall released a statement promising that his office was immediately filing motions to dissolve any injunctions against, quote, pro-life bills held up in the court system. These would have to be dissolved before pro-life measures could go into effect in Alabama. It took 82 minutes. 82 minutes. Less than two hours for him to jump into action to ensure that the law that will force children in Alabama to carry incest rape pregnancies to term, to use the force of the state to impose his religious views on the bodies of others, less than 82 minutes for him to jump into action to enforce that policy. Yet after five months... Five months, almost half a year, they did not have a position that they could tell the press on the issue of child labor in a plant with rampant safety issues to include amputation hazards much less having actually done anything about this specific issue or anything proactively to ensure safe working conditions for adults and to ensure enforcement of child labor law for minors. After five months, they had nothing that they could tell the press. 
nothing at all. It's just ridiculous. And 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 of course, like I just I just I do want to make clear, just so that you, the listener, don't get the idea that this is some crazy idea that 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 actually it's somebody else's jurisdiction to enforce child labor laws or anything else like that. That it's not in his wheelhouse, or even that there is no precedent. There absolutely is. I want to share this from you. Terry Gerstein for the Economic Policy Institute last year put together a really good report on how district attorneys and state attorneys general are fighting for workers. And and in this case, children. She reports that state and lo- <clears throat> state and local prosecutors have been bringing charges in a range of cases, including wage theft misclassification of workers as independent contractors, payroll fraud, failure to pay unemployment insurance taxes, workers' compensation insurance fraud, labor trafficking, egregious workplace safety and health violations, workplace sexual assault, witness tampering, and retaliation. And we aren't just seeing these cases in a handful of places either. We're seeing them in California, Colorado, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Texas, Virginia, Washington. This isn't just out there, kooky liberal stuff, enforcing the law, (laughs) enforcing laws that protect workers. And some jurisdictions are even going a step further in creating separate departments solely for worker protections. Like San Diego DA Summer Stefan in 2021. Like Queens DA Melinda Katz. Like San Francisco DA Chesa Boudin in 2020. Like Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner in 2019. Yet here in Alabama, a literal... A literal child labor case can sit in the attorney general's office for five months and nobody know about it and nothing be done about it. It's insane. It is. And like you said, it's a reflection of the priorities that we have uh, from the attorney general's office. And I think it really speaks to... Alabama's issues in terms of law enforcement on behalf of working class people uh, and on behalf of children. We have child labor laws for a reason. We have minimum wage laws and overtime laws for a reason. Right. Uh, But those laws are only as good as they are enforced. And it's very clear that the state of Alabama has no interest in enforcing any laws that might actually help ordinary working people now as you said like they will rush to go uh get their name in the press to go get their name on fox news to jump into the latest controversy it took what less than 90 minutes to get involved in the abortion issue as soon as the supreme court made their decision but you can't do anything about children literally risking their life and limb (laughs) Right in your backyard? I mean, this is this is in the Montgomery area. Yeah. It's not even the other part of the state here. He could he, he could probably walk to the place. Right. It would be a little bit of a trek. But apparently he doesn't have anything else better to do because he's getting ready to sue Google because it's not giving him the search results he wants. 
So he's got the time, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got... So there was just so many issues that came up when you read this article from Reuters. And if you haven't read it yet, I just can't recommend it enough. Uh, But it speaks to the issues with our attorney general, as you just laid out. It speaks to the lack of law enforcement when it comes to labor law. Uh, And our labor law, as we've discussed frequently on this show, is not sufficient. It is not uh, good enough for working class people in this country. But even what we do have is insufficiently enforced. It speaks to the role of temp agencies in in these sort of settings, uh, because of course, Hyundai is going to push the blame off to the temporary staffing agency that they claim they were using here uh, that that brought these workers, these children in as workers. And anyone who's familiar with the auto industry or the auto parts supply chain industry knows that these temp staff agencies are a huge presence. Uh, and folks are, mm. are often kind of told about Oh, we've got a new Toyota plant. We've got a new Hyundai plant. There's all these good jobs that are coming. Right. Uh, and, and then, lo and behold, many of those people are actually funneled through staffing agencies where the work is temporary, it's precarious, it doesn't get the same amount of pay or benefits that the full-time folks are getting. Uh, and the use of these staffing agencies presents a major problem when it comes to situations like this where you don't, where an employer isn't even verifying who the hell they're employing. Right. In the Reuters report, and, and Adam, we got a comment that says your audio is very quiet, but they can hear me, so okay. maybe work on that. But but the um, in, in the Reuters report, the um, <laughs> they talk about how uh, they asked Hyundai for a comment, and Hyundai said something to the effect of, oh, you know, we follow the law, blah, 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 and, and basically we expect our contractors to also follow the law. And, that, and it shows exactly, you know, when you're when you've got a 12-year-old girl working in your facility you know that's not something that you can just say like oh well i didn't know i expected my contract like you can just literally look and see you can somebody just, knew yes somebody, somebody knew and in the in report and in the report they talked to several workers who said they worked with dozens of miners in this facility. So this is clearly, this was clearly an issue. This was clearly an issue that these Reuters investigators, who are not paid by the state of Alabama, were able to find out. And yet, the Alabama Attorney General has known about this for five months. And nothing, nothing. We're not seeing anything about arrests of the bosses at this plant. We're not seeing anything about fines. We're not seeing anything about civil penalty penalties. Nothing. Nothing at all from politicians in Montgomery about this. And of course, the second that workers try to come together and fix it themselves, politicians in Montgomery either would be absent or actively opposed to their organization. Yeah, and one last thing I wanted to say on this is, is like, this is just another example of why it's so important that we have solidarity with our migrant brothers and sisters, uh, because we see where immigrants are hyper-exploited and where employers use their precarious situations, their lack of legal status in some cases, their poverty status, their refugee status, uh, employers prey upon 
folks who are fleeing often terrible situations in their home countries and, and risking their lives to come over here to the United States just to try to make a better life for themselves. Right. And I know that there are those in the right-wing media who would love to divide and conquer working-class people and love to have native-born Americans, you know, pitted against migrants. But the way forward is through solidarity and recognizing that it doesn't do us any good as American workers to have other workers who are preyed upon because of their immigration status. At the end of the day, we're all in this together. We're all trying to sell our labor in order to survive. And we're all facing exploitation and oppression. So I think I, I just wanted to emphasize that uh, before we move on from this story is that it's very, very important that we not allow ourselves to be divided uh, by immigration. Right. The employers <clears throat> love to bring people over that they can exploit and that they can use the threat of ICE and deportation against, uh, that they can silence. And the, the key, the, the, the task for us in the labor movement is to organize, mm -hmm. is to organize these workers, to bring them into our movement uh, and, and join together in solidarity. Right. Yeah, these employers, they, they don't want open borders. They want... They want borders just open enough that people can come in, but not so open that they have rights. Right. They absolutely. want people to be able to come in without rights that they can uh, that they can exploit, um, and that if they get too uppity, they can call ICE um, and to deport be, their entire to, family. Yeah, and deport their entire family and, and be thugs for the boss, which Our, is which is basically, uh, especially under the Trump administration, what ICE was more or less reduced to thugs for the boss. Yeah, and even for more white collar workers, you know, when you're talking about visas. Right. Employer totally dependent. Visas. Yeah, totally dependent on the employer. Um, so, the you know, the immigration system is is not set up to be beneficial for the immigrants themselves or for, you know, American workers either. Right. Yeah, it definitely doesn't it is, help us. the benefit of bosses. Yeah. Uh, so just a uh, uh, really, really, really disgusting story out of Alabama, um, out of Montgomery. Yet again, and, um, the state of Alabama making national news for a disgrace. Yeah. We deserve better leaders in this state. Yeah. Uh, a few people in the chat. Jeb says, rather than direct hiring, these suppliers also use third-party staffing agencies, uh, often classified as independent contractors, just to skirt labor laws and keep themselves off the radar. Right That's on. exactly what right happened on. here. And, and, and when <clears> something <throat> bad happens like this, when they get they can caught, the they, they can pass the buck. Yeah. Blame it on a staffing agency instead of taking accountability for their own actions. Yeah, and these aren't hap this this thing isn't happening at union plants. Uh, Strom says, "I'm honestly not that surprised. Southern automobile parts suppliers are nightmares. Uh, yeah. Look at how BMW contracts hiring out to MAU in South Carolina, um, people working as quote temps for several years." Mm -hmm. Strom also says the Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi, has some crazy stuff like that going on too. Um, yeah. We're rounding out the main show today with a plea from co-host Adam Keller 
to get involved in your community in whatever way that may be, whether you become a union activist, uh, you become a member of DSA or a local political party, just do something to get involved. Adam is gonna make a much, uh, a much more coherent plea than I am, so I'm gonna go ahead and hand it over to him. Well, since we talked about uh, going back to the basics, if you are a person who is upset at the state of the world, what can you do? So I wanted to just share some thoughts, take a moment of personal privilege to, to address that. And when we look at the conditions in which we're living, you don't need me to tell you that we face crisis upon crisis upon crisis. It's easy to look at these conditions and follow the news and feel discouraged, depressed, angry, anxious, or alienated. The forces of exploitation and oppression are counting on us being paralyzed by these feelings. To borrow from Jesse Jackson, they win by the margin of our despair, by the margin of the fracture of our coalition. So never forget that there are people in this world, in this country, in this state, and in your community who believe we can and must do better. Perhaps the most profound lesson of American history is that change comes from the bottom up, and we the people have had to organize and fight for every inch of progress. And not only do everyday working people have to fight to move us forward, we have always had to fight to keep from moving backwards. The forces of exploitation and oppression will always have more money, more force, more structural power. The counter that we have is people power. We have to look back at the movements of the 60s, the 30s, the turn of the century, and examine the ways they built and exercised people power. The challenge now and for the future is to build an organized, diverse working class movement of our own that can grow and use the people power necessary for a better world. So what can you do and how? The most simple answer is we do something together. Everyone listening right now has something to contribute to the movement, whether it's your time, your energy, your skills, or your donations. But do it collectively. If you're listening, I bet you have at least one person in your life who at least has the potential to be a comrade in the struggle. Someone you will fight for, someone who will fight for you, and someone who will join you in fighting for folks y'all don't even know. Now on this show, we believe the labor movement is the key component. So we encourage everyone to get involved in organizing at the workplace, strengthening and reforming your unions, and of course, establishing new unions. Make that list of your coworkers and start having one-on-one -on -one conversations. But we can't stop there. We have to keep going. Maybe you're interested in mutual aid. Maybe you're interested in electoral campaigns and get out the vote efforts. Maybe you're interested in policy reform and advocacy. Maybe you're interested in popular education and training. Maybe you're interested in protests and other forms of direct action. Or maybe you're interested in community and issue-based organizing. I'm not going to tell you where or how you should do something. Just that you should do it and do it together with others. Because there are good people doing good work on all of those fronts, and they all need more help. 
With that in mind, I wanted to share some ideas on where to get started. If you are a worker and not a boss, you can join the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World. That's an easy way to get involved in the labor movement, regardless of whether unions exist in your area or industry. DSA in North Alabama is trying to establish a chapter here and could use some folks. And the Birmingham DSA chapter has been doing some really good work punching above their weight. United Women of Color and the Citizens Coalition for Justice Reform are doing important work on criminal justice issues here in Huntsville. The Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance is a network of local activists and organizers. And in fact, they actually have a meeting coming up Wednesday night at 530 at the downtown Huntsville Library, if you want to put that on your calendar. Hometown Action, Friends of the Show, they are organizing at the state and local level across Alabama with an emphasis on rural communities. The Huntsville Bail Fund is a critical resource for our local activist movement, uh, particularly considering the riot police that we have to deal with here in Huntsville. NASO, the North Alabama School for Organizers, offers local training and conducts mutual aid. And then there are some nonprofits in Alabama that are doing some really important work that could always use volunteers and, of course, donations. Personally, I'm a proud member of Alabama Arise, which does a variety of advocacy and policy work, particularly around poverty. Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice and the Adelante Worker Center are doing important work. There's our legal friends at Alabama Appleseed. There's Energy Alabama and GASP doing important environmental work. And these were just some of the ones off the top of my head. I know that I'm leaving some out, and I'm sure there are plenty more. Find organizations you can support. Find activities you can get involved in. Find strike funds and causes you can donate to. And most importantly, grow your network of comrades. A better world is possible but only when we come together and organize a movement that can fight for it. I definitely want to second all of that. It's so important to understand that politics is not consumption, is not, you know, entertainment. It's not who your favorite, you know, Twitch streamer is or debate bro or whatever. Um, it's not even your favorite politician uh, politics properly understood is what you're doing in your community to make it better, uh, to make your life better, to make the life of your sisters and brothers on the job and in the community better. Um, that's what politics is. And you can be as pure as you want as far as understanding, you know, Rawlsian or Marxist theory. Um, but having ideas in your head isn't enough. You've got to go and do something. Um, faith without works is dead. So <laughs> go out Amen. and do some works. Amen. All right, folks, that is going to be it for the best of the Valley Labor Report here on the radio. As we are rounding out the program, don't forget about our UMWA sisters and brothers down in Brookwood. You can support the striking families by donating to their strike pantry fund. That is paypal.me slash UMWA strike pantry. Obed Edom has a new album done up in Jade Like Green Waters. Check it out on their Bandcamp. That is Obed Edom. 
Again, you can leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can buy our merch or give us money on our website. That's tvlr.fm. And don't forget to like, subscribe. I don't know how many people are y'all, uh, how many folks are watching us live, uh, but if you're watching us live, you should definitely be subscribed to our YouTube channel and you should like the stream and share us with people that you think might also be interested. We're gonna be continuing to walk down memory lane in overtime. Uh, so if you're listening to us on the radio and you wanna continue hanging out, then you can find us online on Facebook and YouTube. We're gonna continue the show there. All power to the workers. Which side are you on?